Good afternoon. Today is Wednesday, the 1st of November 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Brian Gerrish. Delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson from the Netherlands, bringing us Eastern approaches. We've also got Debbie Evans, our nursing correspondent with us. Plus, we have a guest today. Now, I'd just like to say the weather's a little bit blustery in the uh, UK, so we've got a little bit of a grey background. I'm just commenting for our New Zealand audience, but for you, especially if you're watching from New Zealand, I've put on a bright tie. Well, Debbie, let's bring you in straight away. And uh, we should all relax because we can trust the government and the government is going to trust AI and AI is going to look after us. Good afternoon. Yes, that's very true. And, you know, today I'm going to be asking some questions and I recommend that we all ask these questions because we know we've got regulators but we know that regulators don't regulate for a start. But nobody can even determine the definition of artificial intelligence yet. So if we can't even define it, we can't regulate it. So basically, it's a free for all. So this week, Rishi Sunak is hosting the uh, Bletchley Park uh, UK AI Safety Summit. And you can see there who is attending. We've got James Cleverley, we've got Michelle Donnellan. So plenty of ministers attending. But if we just cast our minds back to Rishi Sunak's speech of only last week, we can see that um, he very proudly announces that he's been to Moorfields Hospital. And uh, now that they can tell through um, the eye, they can predict blindness, heart attacks, or even Parkinson's disease. So this isn't just about uh, facial recognition. This is using the eye for many more, uh, many more areas. But it also brings, and as he puts it, dangers and fears. So let's see what dangers and fears Rishi Sunak actually highlighted, because he said that the UK intelligence community had issued a stark warning. And those warnings I've highlighted in red. So you might want to freeze the screen for some of them. But basically, they're saying that if we get it wrong, AI is going to, be, is, is going to make it easier to build chemical and biological weapons. It's going to make it easier for terrorists to use AI to spread fear and destruction, Criminals could exploit AI for cyber attacks, disinformation, or even child sexual abuse. And it says that humanity could lose control of AI completely. It's a super intelligence. And although he doesn't wish to be an alarmist, um, he's 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 clearly putting out all these warnings when he's invited China to attend the summit. So that's uh, created quite a bit of division within our political uh, establishment. But who else is going to the summit? And we can see that Elon Musk has been invited. And um, I think Rishi Sunak's very, very pleased that he's managed to book Elon Musk for this. But let's see who isn't coming to the summit. So Joe Biden, apparently, is trying to beat Rishi to it. He wants to talk about AI safety and he wants to talk about AI surveillance. Uh, but he's going to send Kamala Harris anyway. Um, but I watched the entire session of, honestly, it was grueling, the uh, governance of artificial intelligence on the select committee because I wanted to know who else was going to go to this summit because it's all to do with safety. And if we skip on to the next uh, slide, you'll see that the people that were invited to give evidence were Dame Melanie Dawes, Chief Executive of Ofcom. We've got Will Hayter, Digital Markets Unit, Competitions Market Authority. John Edwards, the Information Commissioner Officer. 
Kate Jones Digital Regulation Cooperation Forum. So we've got four regulators giving evidence at the state of talking about safety and regulation of AI. So when they were asked in the inquiry, were they going to be attending the summit? The answer was unanimous. And I just snipped a, a little bit of the transcripts. I would advise anybody, if you've got the stomach, to go and listen to that um, two hours inquiry. Um, it talks a lot about the online safety bill, a lot of what Mike Robinson's been talking about. Um, and there is a transcript available for, for it if you need it. So they're not going to go. They're not going to go to the summit. <laughs> Clearly, there's no regulation. But how can we see AI play out in our everyday lives? So I went to the Department of Health and Social Care and I looked up to see what they were doing with AI. And they seem to be wanting to speed up lung cancer diagnoses. So 21, 21 million is being allocated to 64 trusts. Is your trust included? Here is a couple of screenshots just to show you the trusts that are included. Now, freeze the screen and you can see whether yours is included. And there's a next screenshot as well of a few more trusts that are involved in this. And also you'll see mention of the MHRA and they're going to be in a partnership with governments and regulators and they're going to be involved in the whole advancement of AI to make sure that we get things we get things first. But do we trust it? Do we trust AI? What are they actually doing with it other than cancer care? So I went to the Innovation in Health and Social Care report to their media fact sheet. And I'm just using that slide to navigate you to go to look. Because if you go further into that, you can see that they bring out a blog. And on their blog, they're showing where they're spending this 21 million pounds so how are they how are they using it it's not just cancer let's look at a few of the applications that they're using it for today actually today so this is brainomics which analyzes brain scans of people who have had strokes so this is all about prediction this is all about the interpretation of scans However, are they the right interpretations? There's also one called CARI, which is heart AI, heart scanning. Now, this is going to be giving a, a risk of, are you likely to have a heart attack within the next eight years? Well, are you going to trust AI to tell you that? There's also another one, Project Osiris, which is talking about AI being used in radiotherapy um, and also glucose monitors. Now, again, are we going to trust the AI, who is programming this AI? We're even talking about arm monitors and glucose monitoring. Um, and the next one is SHRUD, which stands for Single Health Resilience Early Warning Database. And this is tracking patients across a hospital. Well, I would say actually it's it means spying. And it doesn't stop there because AI, and this next paper was uh, back in 2018, but this is this is asking how AI can improve end of life care. And there's this paper and there's a following paper that people go look at because it looks as though we could be looking into are we over treating people? And there was a recent study from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. Um, and I haven't put a screenshot of that up, but I'd advise anybody to go and look at it. Um, are we over treating people? Um, how do we get sick? When do we get sick? How badly sick do we get? How bad does it get before AI predicts our end of life care path?
A lot of questions there, a lot of debate. Be very interested in everybody's views and thoughts. Debbie, thank you very much for that huge number of questions. And I feel that the acronyms that they're using particularly creepy. I don't get a sense that this is about people uh, using human, real human skills to help their fellow uh, human being. There's something much darker on the move. Now, of course, we've seen terrible things happening with people in the care uh, system as it exists, never mind that we get AI coming in. Um, let's bring our guest on, Jackie DeVoy. Uh, welcome to the UK Column News, Jackie. And you're going to tell us a bit about your work and what you're seeing as the huge risks to people in the system. Yes, good afternoon, and thank you for inviting me on the show. Um, my name is Jackie Devoy, and I've worked as a freelance journalist for over 30 years now. Um, in the last three years, I've been investigating uh, euthanasia in care homes and hospitals. Now, I know that's quite a difficult thing for a lot of people to get their head around that it's actually happening, but it is. So it all, all began when a man came to me uh, three years ago uh, to tell me that his uh, relative had been killed in an NHS facility. And so um, he had a, a huge pile of, um, of incontrovertible evidence at the time, which I went through with him. And it was pretty obvious that that is exactly what happened. His, uh, his loved one had been actually killed, uh, drugged to death um, in uh, an NHS facility. Now, at that time, my, my own dad was in a care home and I just found out that he'd had a DNR put on his file. That's a, a do not resuscitate order, uh, which at the time were being put on, um, there were blanket DNRs going on. They were being put on uh, people in care homes, uh, people being admitted into hospital who are over 60. I spoke to several whistleblower doctors at the time about this. They're even being put on people who are disabled, mentally and physically disabled, uh, even on children um, with autism and people with mental health issues. So it's pretty shocking. And I didn't, couldn't really work out why this was going on at the time. This was very early on in 2020. So I read a few articles and uh, did some interviews um, on the subject and other people started contacting me with similar stories. So once I'd spoken to about 20 people who told me that their loved ones had been euthanized, mainly in care homes and hospitals, uh, I contacted the national newspapers uh, thinking that they would be very interested in this story. Um, I arranged meetings with uh, two of them, the, the news editor on the Daily Mail and the medical editor on Mail on Sunday. We had face-to-face -face meetings. I brought the man along with me, the man who came to me originally, with his huge file of evidence. And uh, the editors were, uh, at first they didn't really believe it, but by the end of the separate meetings, their jaws were on the floor. I always say that because they were actually, they could see that it, that it had happened and that it was happening. And so both of them separately said, well, this, this is headline news. You know, it should be on the front pages of all the newspapers. Um, this is shocking. It's the story of the century. And off they went with the, the copies of all the evidence that we had at that point in time. And... Uh, but over the, um, over the next few um, weeks, uh, going into a couple of months, they just gradually stopped communicating with me. They went very, very quiet. In fact, one hasn't answered any of my emails since, um, since August 2021. Um, so I, I, try, I kept trying to get the story out there. No one was interested. Uh, I was then approached by uh, Iconic Films, uh, who suggested making um, the story into a, into a documentary. So we did that. Um, uh, I showed that to the mainstream editors as well, still not interested. 
In fact, uh, after the premiere, a BBC uh, reporter uh, reported it as a conspiracy movie. Um, there was a brilliant researcher called Wayne Smith, who I'd been talking to for some time, who'd been investigating the death of his um, father back in 2013 when, when um, he was killed uh, by a district nurse, I believe. Someone came to that, the home and injected him with midazolam and morphine, and he died on the spot. So Wayne had been investigating this, and he was due to appear in the film um, with some other people. Um, but about a, a week um, before our initial meeting, he was found dead at home, which was really shocking. Um, police, the police sneeringly told me on the phone that he died of COVID, and I asked them why, why the tone of voice, and they said um, because he was one of those people that didn't believe in COVID, and then he died of COVID. They were like kind of joking about it; it was horrendous. Um, myself and a doctor friend, Dr. Mark Jones, contacted the coroner at the time to try and find out what happened, and they said he'd been tested uh, posthumously uh, with a PCR test and had um, uh, been. Uh, well, listed as having COVID because um, the, the test came out positive. So um, in the film, I have six people telling the most horrifying stories of how their loved ones were involuntarily euthanized in care homes and hospitals. And I also talked to Dr. Patrick Pulicino, who some people may be familiar with. He's a retired priest, uh, sorry, he's a retired neurologist and a and, uh, Catholic priest. Um, he's been speaking out against their, these awful end-of-life practices for over a decade. And he says the drugs that are used in end-of-life pathways, um, usually a, a benzodiazepine called medazolam and an opioid, usually morphine, uh, should never be used concomitantly. So they shouldn't be used together. And when they are used together, especially when they're administered uh, continuously via a syringe driver, which is like a pump, um, that it, it almost always results in, in death. Um, also in the film, I talk about uh, the new uh, NICE guideline, NG163, which was brought in um, in April 2020. Um, it's identical to the Liverpool, Liverpool Care Pathway, which was um, abolished in 2014, as it was deemed to be inhumane and barbaric. And uh, this, new, this new protocol, this new guideline, was used to treat people presenting with respiratory illness um, using uh, high doses of these drugs, midazolam and morphine. And this invariably led to the deaths of the people receiving them. Um, over the last three years, I've heard many stories of people who hadn't been tested for COVID and hadn't been diagnosed with it, hadn't had any positive results, um, yet they were still given huge doses of these drugs um, and they died because of it. And these people were not terminally ill. And I know you mentioned earlier that uh, the elderly, they weren't always elderly. So, yeah, back in 2020, uh, the, the then Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, had uh, consulted a panel of two professors and nine doctors about this new guideline, NG163. They all agreed it was dangerous, it was not to be used. They outlined this in a letter to the British Medical Journal, the BMJ, which is available online if anyone wants to have a look at it, um, uh, for everyone to see. Um, Hancock ignored the expert's advice and the guideline was subsequently uh, put in place. Um, I also mentioned in the film the huge order that Matt Hancock made for extra supplies of midazolam in April 2020. The 22,000 packs, which was a two-year supply that he ordered, cleared out a factory in France and was gone in a matter of months. 
Hancock was filmed at a House of Commons meeting on April the 7th, sorry, April the 17th, 2020, discussing supplies of midazolam with the MP, Dr. Luke Evans. Earlier this year, Matt Hancock committed perjury when he stated he'd not heard of midazolam until a protester called Geza Teriani shouted the word at him in the street in January 2023. The recording of the April 2020 meeting proves that he was lying in court. When I was making the film, I set up a group of um, a, a group for the contributors uh, just to keep them all, all in one place. And that group has now become a support group. We have 99 members as of today, um, all of whom are relatives of people who were involuntarily euthanized in UK care homes and hospitals. Since 2021, I've continued to research this. My dad died at the hands of paramedics the year that year, 2021 in September, after a fatal reaction to something he was injected with, but that's another story. I don't have all the evidence on that yet. So I've not been focused on that. I've just been focusing on trying to help, help the people who do have the evidence. Um, and people have continued to come to me with their stories, each one more sickening than the other. They've lost mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, uncles, aunts, cousins, siblings, children, and in one case, a grandchild. The devastation these murders have caused is absolutely unimaginable to anyone who's not suffered the trauma that these people have been through. It's absolutely awful. Jackie, if, if I can just come back in yep. and say yep. thank you very much for that very comprehensive summary. And of course, the film that you're referring to in the first instance is A Good Death. Uh, but you're also working on a new film, Playing God. And uh, your dedication to this is really um, amazing. Uh, we are going to do our best to give you some support and give people a voice to speak out. So I hope that we'll be able to get some of those people to join you uh, with the UK column in order to talk in more detail about what happened to their loved ones. Um, but I'm going to say thank you very much for, for giving us that summary. And of course, you will be with us for UK Column Extra. Um, so for people joining us after the news, uh, we'll be discussing things in more detail with Jackie. Thank you very much. Thank you for well, having me. Thank okay, thank you. Let's uh, move on to the media. And what better place to start than the BBC? And uh, I want to uh, highlight here reporting uh, to do with uh, Israel and Gaza. Let's bring it on screen. And we're going to do this quite quickly. But I'm encouraging people to really look and watch and think about the BBC and how it reports. Uh, the first thing at the top we've, we've been mentioning for a while is the relative positions of things. So Israel and the Gaza war, number two now. They've uh, moved up to top billing. Uh, cost of living. And then we're at uh, the war in Ukraine. So the war in Ukraine dropping to the background. But as I looked at the uh, BBC uh, page, Climate was given a mention, of course. Um, what I was interested in was this one, BBC Verify Attacks. Uh, BBC Verify verifies attacks in areas of safety in South Gaza. And uh, the BBC analysed four strikes. Now, I went to look at this because I was particularly interested to see what they did. This is another part of the main uh, part of the BBC web page. And I couldn't uh, uh, help but notice how they do it. So we've got a picture of a huge bomb crater. Uh, but there's nothing about deaths in the headline. It's striking, uh, strike leaves massive crater, whereas the small text says, well, at least 50 uh, people died. So... 
the BBC manipulating people who are looking at its material. But here's the BBC Verify segment, and I'm going to say, because I've only got a short time to do this, encourage people to go and read it for yourself, because it's very important that we know exactly what the BBC said. Um, but the point of what the BBC was doing, uh, as you can read if you freeze the screen, is that they were checking what had happened uh, in cases where there'd been Israeli bombings and people had died because they felt that there were cases where um, people had moved to safe areas on the instructions of the Israeli, but subsequently those areas were bombed and people died. These are the four areas uh, and four circumstances that the BBC decided to look at. And um, uh, if you go into each of these, you'll find that the BBC team clearly have concerns that people were advised, often through social media, although we know that at one stage the Israelis had shut down social media, people were advised to move, move south in Gaza or move from one area to another area. Uh, they had just done so when there was an attack, when bombs fell in those new areas, and that resulted in casualties. Um, now, basically, this is just one of them, Khan Yunis, on the 10th of October, and uh, Israeli fighter jets struck here. But the point that the BBC makes, and I'll do it quickly by showing you this image, is that on the left-hand picture, uh, with, with a map of city areas, there's an arrow showing the direction that people were invited to move to safety taking them to a more central position. And no sooner had they done so than there was a massive strike which caused huge casualties, as we can see in the right-hand figure. And uh, the BBC went through the remaining three examples with similar sorts of analysis. And I think it's very important we recognise that the BBC is starting to do this. Uh, here is the IDF response. And if we just uh, highlight it a bit, it said that it cannot provide any further information regarding these specific locations. It had called on civilians in Gaza to move south for their safety but will continue striking terrorist targets in all parts of Gaza. It added, in accordance with international law, the IDF takes precautionary measures in order to avoid damage to the civilian population. These measures include warnings before strikes in cases where it's possible to do so. So that was the response from the uh, Israelis. Let's just have a look at this uh, little film clip here where there's comment about bombing uh, by one of the... Uh, uh, IDF spokespeople. We went, we were focused again on our target, a senior, senior commander wolf, and we'll be updating uh, you with more data as the hour moves ahead. But even if that uh, uh, Hamas commander was there amidst all those Palestinian refugees who are in that, in that Jabalia refugee camp, Israel still went ahead and, and dropped a bomb there attempting to kill this Hamas, uh, this Hamas, Hamas commander, knowing that a lot of innocent civilians, men, women and children, presumably would be killed. Is that what I'm hearing? That's not what you're hearing, Wolf. We, again, were focused on this commander, again, who you'll get more data who this man was, uh, killed many, many Israelis. Uh, we're doing everything we can. These are, it's a very complicated battle space. There could be infrastructure there. There could be tunnels there. Uh, we're still looking into it and we'll give you more data as the hour moves ahead. 
but you know that there are a lot of refugees, a lot of innocent civilians, men, women, and children in that refugee camp as well, right? This is the tragedy of war, Wolf. I mean, we, as you know, we've been saying for days, move south. Civilians are not involved with Hamas. Please move south. About the civilians there, we're doing everything we can to minimize. Uh, I'll, tell it, I'll say it again. Sadly, they are hiding themselves within civilian populations. So there we are. The advice is please move south. But even the BBC has had to admit that when people have done that previously, they've then been attacked and bombed. Alex, let's uh, welcome you to UK Column. Great to have you back with us. Um, now, you've uh, got a little bit of film footage here of somebody who's been um, um, interrogated by the Israelis and they're speaking out. What, what have you got to tell us? I've decided to go only for a still, Brian, because I thought that if I were to pick out a section of video, it would perhaps give an incomplete and therefore misleading impression of what is in the video clips. So before we bring it on screen to tell people what has been going on, Shin Bet is the Israeli domestic security service, uh, the equivalent of the FBI or MI5, although it has rather more powers than either of those. And Shin Bet has been bearing the brunt of the blame within Israel itself, as far as I am understanding it, although I'm not a specialist in that region, but I'm reading this widely, for having to failed to foresee and forestall what was going on in Gaza in the lead up to the 7th of October attacks. Now Shin Bet has come up with a video of about 12 minutes, we'll bring that on screen now, uh, which consists of spliced together interviews of perhaps five uh, detainees, all wearing these dark brown uh, detainee uh, uh, sweatshirts, I would call them. They're certainly not jumpsuits. I want to use accurate language. And they are all being interviewed according to the on-screen uh, time and date stamps. It would be a week after the attack, so mid-October, but it's just been released now. The upload uh, I'm sharing here is a, a re-upload by Jonathan Sakadoti, and that will be in the show notes. The first surprise is they're all being interviewed in office settings. There is a difference between them all, Brian. Some are in a more comfortable furnished setting like this and are not handcuffed. Others are handcuffed. One or two have deeply blooded white T-shirt sides. You could say if you were cynical, that's because Shinbet wants to show off uh, that they're, just, they're fresh captives. I don't know. It could indicate they've been in their clothes for longer. Some are handcuffed, as I say, some are not. Most are looking down and dejected like this. Um, I'm no expert in whether people have been tortured or not. I did rub shoulders quite closely with the specialist interrogators for that part of the world within the British and American intelligence system. 15, 20 years ago, they were considering making me one of their own. The vetting officer said, no, it's uh, too risky with your backstory. But I have mixed in that milieu. I would say... Oh, and I, I should also mention that the, the language is accurate. Again, Arabic is not one of my main languages, but there are always people in such situations saying this is fake subtitling. That very, very rarely happens, except when people make silly claims about what Putin said. Um, start, subtitling in Arabic and Hebrew is almost always painstakingly accurate. You have to look levels deeper than that if you think a spin is going on. What I take out of it is that these men were genuinely perpetrators of the attacks. They do confess um, with prodding questions, but no browbeating going on in the interview setting itself, they confessed that they had been told either to massacre women and children <clears throat> or to take as many as possible captive. 
being uh, offered the prize of an apartment for each one they took back and to use them as human shields. Uh, in the second half, uh, they are given even more leading questions by Shin Bet in Arabic, obviously this is, they're, they're, they're using the native language of the detainees, and they're being asked first, who do you think is responsible for this attack and new war? And as if on cue, they name the well-known leaders of Hamas who are in exile now in Qatar and, and Turkey. They name Khalid Mishal uh, and Ismail Haniya and uh, Yahya uh, uh, Shinwar, the, the main men, and say these men just led us like lambs to the slaughter from afar and they don't care. Even more tellingly towards the end, I think this is where Shinbet could be described even by pro-Israeli sources as being on thin ice. The interrogators say, but this is anti-Quranic and not Islamic, isn't it? And they all, in body language that I, as a non-expert, understand to be fairly authentic, say, yes, you're quite right. We're not allowed to murder non-combatants, certainly not women and children, least of all babies. Um, and they don't get further than that. They, they don't say I was programmed or I was duped. But they do say, you know, our objective was to capture and hold these areas and bring as many Israeli citizens alive or dead back with us as possible. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are, because you, of course, have had going back some years, some experience with this as well. Um, I wouldn't dare say whether they were tortured or ill-treated before these recordings, but I would say that it would be a bit shallow to reject such a recording as completely fabricated or propaganda. Alex, uh, thank you very much for that. Um, it's a difficult subject. We've put that up and you, you've given a narrative on it, which is... Uh, uh, in the middle of the road, as I think it should be. I'm just going to say to the audience that it was Alex that gave me a book called The History of Torture, which was about Britain's own failings in numerous countries around the world, torturing people at various times of our history. Um, so this is the reality of brutal wars, and uh, we're going to have to see how things develop and what, what more information comes forward on this. I'm just going to move back into the BBC and uh, how the BBC reports on uh, the wars. Let's have a look at uh, this page here. Now, I've, I've put a title in, BBC balances the Gaza dead against Israeli military uh, operations. And this is the, uh, the top line there where you've got bullied holes, gutted rooms, uh, a father that lost all his children. Then it moves across to Bolivia's comments as it se severs diplomatic ties. But eventually we get into the Israeli military operations. And if we go further down the uh, BBC page, um, then we get most watched. And of course, this tells us a lot because what is the audience looking at? The horror of the death and destruction of families in Gaza. So that's number one. They're also looking at the bombing going on, number two. Uh, but then we can see how effective the BBC is because three is utter dross, in my opinion, uh, which is to do, about, to do with Cliff Richard mixing up artificial insemination and AI. But this is the level of audience that the BBC has themselves created. And uh, if we go on down, um, we divert attention from Israel's attacks on Gaza with new claims of Russian civilian attacks. And this, of course, is on the, on the war in Ukraine page. But this interested me in particular because uh, right at the bottom of this page was a tiny, tiny map of the war in Ukraine. So I was very interested in this. And when I had a look, um, what I found in that map section were these headlines. 
Uh, they're in the order I found them. They're right at the top, and I'm now putting the dates of them on screen. So basically, the BBC has frozen the war in Ukraine because the counteroffensive has not worked as the West wanted. Uh, the Russians are now starting to move forward. There is a horrific fighting. Uh, the BBC's response is simply not to report via the maps. But if we remember, the maps themselves were produced by the Institute for the Study of the War and the American Enterprise Institute's Critical Threats Project. And if we get into the detail about that, uh, beg your pardon, let's just come back onto this one. If we get into the detail of that, uh, we will see that this is to inform and educate policymakers, intelligence and military communities and all interested citizens who need to understand the nuances and scale of threats to American security. So the BBC is following American policy, but they're doing it in a, a slightly devious way. And if you get into AEI itself, you can see the sorts of things they cover here from prosperity to protecting national security. So don't just read the BBC, really look at what they're presenting, how they're presenting, and look at where they're getting their information from, because very often it's absolutely biased in favour of the people who seem to want to prosecute the war in the Middle East and Ukraine. Uh, Alex, let's bring you back on because you've got some comments about uh, other reports in relation to spies. I've lost your sound. Beg your pardon. This is something that I never thought we would see, Brian. Uh, this uh, um, degree of sloppiness or otherwise, it could even be uh, wanton malice at, at play here. Um, intelnews.org is reporting that an ex-Russian spy, which is a bit of a brief description, it's actually a man who's been working for both Latvia and Russia and spying on each on behalf of the other over the decades and finally was turned by the British, um, uh, called uh, Karpichkov, living in Britain for, for 30 years now uh, and uh, now uh, subject to an uh, extradition request by Latvia. It, it's reporting that he is able to sue the British government in a court ruling for revealing his identity. This is the jaw dropper, really, for anyone who's been in, uh, particularly in a former Soviet context, the most sensitive of all. Um, the, the idea that uh, an identity could be blown like that is quite something. And if we just bring that back a moment and look at the, uh, the second paragraph, uh, we're talking here about the closest thing Britain has to an FBI, a national crime agency. Um, somehow they've got stuff which should only be on MI6's books unless it's to do with the witness protection uh, or, or new identity side of it. But by blunder of extreme magnitude or, or malice, who knows, the National Crime Agency told the Latvian uh, extraditing authorities requesting his extradition from Britain, uh, by the way, this is a former spy that we're harboring. This breaks the lifelong pledge that MI6 gives. You know, It pledges that it will look after the dependents if uh, a, a, a service like Russia does manage to murder you in exile afterwards. I, I, I fail to conceive of what has gone on here, but I mention it now not just because of its own staggering nature, but because it seems to be the latest in a series of cases where whether Britain is in or out of the EU is irrelevant. We're still in the European arrest warrant by, by virtue of the Home Office wanting it specifically. We went back into it under Theresa May, actually, even before Brexit. Um, with that in place, there's a number of cases where counterterrorism stops 
of people uh, arriving in Britain and European arrest warrants involving either Britain or continental countries being accused of, you know, surrendering somebody uh, to other countries just because of journalism or for championing in a cause like the Palestinians. All of this is being blamed these days on Schengen or the uh, European arrest warrant, and there's no substance to it. And I know I have some good sources that are helping me from time to time on this, and I'm sharpening up my understanding that particularly when Britain, Britain seeks to shove the blame on the European arrest warrant, there is a great lack of candor there. There is no provision in the EAW for a pro forma data share. So there was no field that the Latvians submitted to the Home Office or to Britain generally saying, indicate here whether he's a spy. That must have been shared voluntarily and in a free flow text field. The mind boggles, uh, but watch this space because we see a lot more of this mistreatment of people, former spies, very severe uh, case if that's happening, but journalists, activists, those who are anywhere in between. And I don't buy any of the blame being shifted to the European arrest warrant or to the Schengen data system. Okay, Alex, uh, Tangled Web, thank you very much for that. Well, let's uh, move on. And as we always say, if you like what the UK column is doing, then uh, please support us, join us and subscribe, uh, because that gives us the financial backing to do what we're doing and to expand, which many of you say you want us to do. Uh, you can also assist us by going to the uh, UK column shop. We've got the new MHRA not fit for purpose t-shirts out. And uh, we're also going to say to you, um, you've got the opportunity of lifetime membership gift vouchers there, which may be an attractive option for Christmas. Uh, share the information. This is very important because this is why we're putting the material out. And uh, I'd also like to say, do visit the website. Many people are still not doing this, but there's some fantastic information. I've had a lot of complimentary emails to my interview with Ben Rubin, where we were talking about the common purpose agenda. And uh, also we've got a really good article, uh, part five, what are we doing to our children? The ceaseless drive to sexualize young children by Hugh McCarthy. So get on to the website and have a look at those articles and please share. And uh, Debbie, let's just bring you up for a 10 seconds on your blog, Windy Weather. Yes, my blog. Yeah, all of those topics. And I'm really focusing on our viewers and our audience. So thank you so much for all of your information. And also life on the ground with a paramedic. Uh, there are some amazing people still in the NHS. So thank you to everyone to, for emailing me. Great. Okay. Now let's move on to your uh, section here, which is uh, back on the subject of, of health. Yeah, now this is going to be interesting because my post bag has been literally full this week um, about one topic in particular. But before I go on to it, just want to say thank you to the viewer that wrote to me and wrote to me a, a physical letter that I have here to say that they got, haven't got a smartphone. They've never opted in to any of the NHS. They've opted out of everything. They have an old mothballed email address. They've never used any of their contact details for the NHS and yet they have been bombarded with messages and letters and texts and all sorts and emails from the NHS. So the question is, who is giving your data to the NHS? Could it be your mobile phone provider? That's a question I'll throw out to everybody. But in the meantime, The Economist has brought out an article to say that the world's largest health research study is now underway in the UK. Now, this pilot 
was last year, and it's going to be looking to recruit 5 million people in order to weigh them, measure them, genotype them, input their data to see who gets sick and why. So let's go to NHS Digital, and you can see how they invite people to join the Future Health Research Programme. And pretty much everybody is eligible. If you're um, under, uh, if you're over 18, then you're eligible. And this is where our viewers come in and so valuable and, and so grateful because not only do I receive emails, but I do receive letters. And thank you to Dot, who sent me this letter that many people seem to have been receiving. And this is from Future Health. And you can see that it's signed from Ali Raghib and Professor John Bell. We've spoken about Professor John Bell many times. But basically, they're inviting residents to take part in this huge study, talking also of blood tests and analysing your DNA. So it's there right in front of your face. And also thank you so much to uh, Peter and Judy who sent this to Josie about Future Health. They, they included the same letter and they said they didn't know, they hadn't seen it before and had I seen it and I hadn't. So thank you very much indeed for letting us know. And another email too, from Jim to say, have we heard about Future Health? Because he's received a letter from them as well. And not only that, but a £10 voucher to entice him to fill out the questionnaire. So I went to have a look at Future Health. So let's have a look at them. Who are they and what do they do? Well, this is apparently an ambitious collaboration between public charity and private sectors. No surprise there then. So they apparently prevent, detect, treat disease. Can you see the AI overlap in this? And running it is, as we just spoke about, Dr. Raghib Ali. Now, Dr. Raghib Ali, he might look a bit scary there or perhaps a bit scary, um, but he's a clinical epidemiologist and you've got all of the old names that you're so familiar with by now. UK Biobank, Cambridge, Oxford. Um, he's been awarded a, an OBE. Um, so all the usual names. But what I was interested in was who's alongside him in his leadership team. And one of these uh, gentlemen is called Michael Warren and he's the chief communication officer now, he's got a long history, UK bio industry, 17 years as a civil servant. He's worked for Innovate UK, the Department of Work and Pensions, the Home Office, Number 10's, Prime Minister's Office, and he's studied psychology. So um, an interesting management lineup for our future health. But how are they funded? So when I went to look at their funding research, I saw that they'd received 79 million from the UK RI, and they've also received 160 million from leading life science companies. So who are these companies, I ask myself? Well, it didn't take long to find, again, the same old names. And if you, if you just flip to the next slide, I'm sure you'll recognize a few. Here you go. You've got Amgen, AstraZeneca, Biogen. You've got Pfizer down there, Roach, uh, lots of pharmaceutical um, involvement there. So this is who is wanting to take your data um, for our future health. Um, but who else is involved? On your high street, it comes straight to your high street. And uh, if you haven't received a questionnaire, you may just ask, in, uh, you may just get asked in boots if you'd like to fill in um, the questionnaire there or fill it in online on behalf of Boots. So it's pretty much everywhere. And um, we have got a little video if we've got time. If not, maybe you want to show it in extra. But there is a little video on future health and what to expect coming through your door 
sometime soon. Okay, I'm very happy if we have got that to show. I suspect we might not have it. Let's, let's just... Our Future Health is designed to be the UK's largest health research programme. Our goal is to transform the prevention, detection and treatment of conditions such as dementia, cancer, diabetes, heart disease and stroke, so future generations can live in good health for longer. This film is part of a series designed to answer common questions about the research programme. All the films are available at ourfuturehealth.org.uk. Our Future Health is building a very detailed and highly secure database of health information that could hold the key to life-saving discoveries for decades to come. As more people take part and our database gets bigger, researchers from around the world will apply to study it. An access review committee made up of experts and members of the public will carefully review every single one of these applications. They will only approve health-related studies that are for the public good and that come from legitimate organisations. Many researchers will apply to use the database to look for patterns in the data, searching the information for clues about human health and disease. If you provide a blood sample, researchers will analyse the natural substances it contains. In the coming years, researchers might find that the levels of a particular substance in blood are an early indicator of disease. This could open up new ways to detect it sooner and intervene. Other researchers will want to build on the... Well, there we are, so Debbie. there you go, researchers from... Yeah, researchers from around the world, where is your data going? And again, my final message would be hashtag just say no. Just say no. Thank you very much. Well, let's go from one video where we should just trust people in one scenario, the NHS and its partnerships. Uh, but let's go into another video with another person we should apparently trust. Let's have a look at the Home Secretary in action. Well, are you confident that the Met, specifically the Met in terms of the London protests, is doing everything it can to enforce the law robustly enough? Or do you think that certain regulations around extremism and terrorism need to be changed or modified, as the Met Commissioner seems to be suggesting might need to happen? Well, first of all, let me explain what we've seen over the last few weekends. We've seen now tens of thousands of people take to the streets following the massacre of Jewish people, the single largest loss of Jewish life since the Holocaust, chanting for the erasure of Israel from the map. To my mind, there's only one way to describe those marches. They are hate marches. Now, secondly, the police and the, crime, uh, the, the Crown Prosecution Service are operationally independent. So it's not for me to provide a running commentary on the specific legal decisions that they are making in real time on the ground. But what the police have made clear is that they are concerned that there's a large number of bad actors who are deliberately operating beneath the criminal threshold in a way which you or I or the vast majority of British people would consider to be utterly odious. Now, we keep our laws under review, and if there is a need to change the law, just as we did in relation to Just Stop Oil protests last year, I will not hesitate to act. You referenced chanting. Is it your view that the chant that we hear at some of those protests from the river to the sea, that one, 
is anti-Semitic in all contexts? And do you think people should be being arrested for chanting that? As I said, I'm not going to get into matters which are operationally independent for the police and the crime, Crown Prosecution Service. They need to make those decisions based on the facts and the evidence as they see them. But I have made my views clear. These are hate marches and the police must take a zero tolerance approach to anti-Semitism. Well, no messing there. Hate marches and we must deal with anti-Semitism. Alex, if you were able to hear that uh, uh, video clip, uh, what's your thoughts? I'm just going to add, I dislike the fact that we have these little secret meetings, then we're going to do something to uh, put the boot further on the public in UK, but we don't want to talk about it. But what was your own take? For full disclosure, I moved in the same circles as Suella, she was then Fernandes at St John's College, Cambridge. Um, she was in the Conservative Association together with my roommate. I wasn't a member of it, but um, she's well spoken of. And I think that you could say that there's a fear and, and a kind of imperative driving her to say this. She's you know, well regarded as a legal mind. And she said twice, She's given, for foreign viewers who won't know the constitutional context, she's given the absolutely correct procedure, which is that the chief constables who at law are magistrates uh, run the police, uh, run the constabularies in the counties independently, and that the Home Office can only coordinate and guide, the uh, same as the sentencing guidelines for the judiciary. It's a, it's a funny British fudge so that we can say we have independent policing and courts. Everyone knows they take orders from the Home Secretary in practice. Right. Um, so she's done. She's gone through all those motions. But it's not that long ago, is it, Brian, since Mike reported on this program that the Home Office, the same lady, Suella Braverman, had written to the chief constables with the same buzzwords that the interviewer there was coming out with. Context, context. It's a very fashionable thing to say these days. You know, you can make anything seem to be anything else if you say context, provide more context. Um, she's saying in a, a missive to the chief constables, which has you know, gone on before this interview, in some contexts, chanting from the river to the sea or flying a Palestinian flag will be hate. And then she gives the, the clincher at the end. She says, zero tolerance to anti-Semitism. That's the order again. The chief constables will do and will trickle down their forces that uh, if they know what they're good for, is what's good for them, will implement the arrest first, ask questions later, as seen with very peaceful protesters at the coronation this summer. There's the same British fudge is, is going on there. You know, Palestine will be free from the river to the sea. What do you do with such a quote? You you can't get inside the people's minds who say it. You know that that's the, the the core issue, and I'm afraid this is just the latest and most contentious example of how the whole Western world, particularly English and Scottish courts, now are saying we determine context, and that goes back to the stage of arrest. Never mind what the Public Order Act 1986 or equivalent outside England and Wales says about um, there must be grounds for an observer of reasonable firmness to take a great umbrage and feel very upset. No, that all goes by the board. And in the case of the David Icke hearing uh, with the Dutch courts, they're even more knee-jerk. They say it doesn't matter what you meant by it. It's, you know, we have to protect the people who say boo-hoo easily. And that philosophy has come through to the whole of the West now. And Britain is particularly disingenuous in how it applies it because our legislation is very strict on paper and our jurisprudence on how to interpret that legislation. It, you, you, you have to show that you have an evil mind, a mens rea, to be prosecuted even, even to be threatened with arrest by constables. Uh, but no, in practice, if you fly a Russian flag or a Palestinian flag, they'll come down on you with the postmodern stuff about context. So 
little time for it, really. Not a bad woman, but in a bad system. And I would imagine she's being put under huge pressure to follow uh, uh, the diktat from above. Now, very quickly, I just like wanted to put um, alongside that an event that happened back in uh, 2021, April 2021, and that was that the BBC, of course, failed to report a huge protest up in London. I emailed Tim Davy to ask him why the BBC failed to report this protest when there were hundreds of thousands of people, all races, colours, ages, religions and backgrounds. Uh, what happened? Well, a huge silence. So we chased him up. Uh, freeze these so you can see what we talked about. But I put a bit of meat behind my email back to him and uh, I'm prompted for that reply. Well, I did get a reply uh, but what did he say? Dear Brian, I am sorry, but I do receive hundreds of emails on numerous topics as much as I'd like to. I simply cannot reply to them uh, to them all. However, the team will always give you a response, which, of course, they didn't. Um, so basically, the BBC solved the problem of crowds which are disagreeing with government policy and disagreeing, in this case, with uh, um, matters to do with vaccine and public health by simply not reporting it. Alex, we'll come back to you because um, you've got some comments here from the from Holland. Yes, uh, people may recognise the young man shown on screen, a member of the Dutch Parliament for the uh, most oppositional of opposition parties, the Forum for Democracy. He's called Gideon van Meijeren, uh, Gideon in English pronunciation, and he is the man who famously uh, held up the offending letter uh, of acknowledgement and thanks written rather effusively by the outgoing Prime Minister Mark Rutte to Klaus Schwab and the whole of the World Economic Forum, having asked first uh, a question in the same Prime Minister's question session about, uh, do you know much about the WEF and do you correspond with them? And Rutte said, no, no. And afterwards, he has a bit of a Teflon man reputation, does, does Rutte. He said, well, you know, I can explain this away. I, I have a poor memory because I have so many of these things going on. But the, the, the letter, even if it was done by his officials, was boilerplate. Why is this in the news, or this, this man is newsworthy internationally now? Because this um, most tenacious of members uh, of members of parliament of the most tenacious party, I disagree with them on many points, but you have to give them their due in that regard, has now got a case hanging over his head. The Dutch public prosecutor, which has a strict state monopoly and as in Scotland, can choose whether to drop a case or leave it hanging as a sword of Damocles to keep people in order. They've now said a year after the complaint was made that in a podcast of last year where Mr. von Meyeren said uh, a very classic Anglo-Scottish-American thing, actually, although it, it's, 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 uh, you know, it's very offensive to, to, to the Dutch ruling class, but a very standard thing for any Anglophone, which is that uh, ultimately if peaceful means uh, don't get us very well far with protesting. We have to use our weight of numbers to get the government out, which the, the Dutch have done enough times over the centuries, by the way. They've led Europe in it and the world. He's now being uh, prosecuted for uprowing, which is, doesn't exactly uh, tally, but you could call it incitement to violence. Uh, Rutter, in a coordinated show of outrage, said, imagine somebody wishing to upend our most precious thing we ever have, which, according to Rutter, is democracy. Very new understanding, if you listen to the Distance Guide to the Constitution on our website, but suddenly that's the greatest good we have, apparently, not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness or, or uh, freedom of any kind. Uh, so von Meyeren had these charges against him announced by the public prosecutor just before Dutch Prime Minister's question time at one o'clock on a Tuesday uh, with all the cameras already lined up uh, in Parliament for that. So he thinks it's extremely politically motivated and 
Uh, I think you can't really fault him there. I don't have footage of it, but his party leader, Thierry Baudet, B-A-U-D-E-T, quite well known abroad now, recently went to neighbouring Flanders in Belgium, where they speak Dutch, as they do here in the Netherlands, and addressed a Conservative students rally. And on the way in, he was repeatedly battered over the head quite severely. He got concussion with an umbrella by a man who then, he did get floored by the police, but by universal uh, complaint by anyone who's watched the footage, they were very uh, uh, lackadaisical in arresting him at the scene. But the man shouts clearly and repeatedly in Ukrainian, no to Putinism, no to fascism. And after that, the Forum for Democracy has said that its five parliamentarians now need its members to fund bodyguards for it. But remember, this, this is the same country where we've had you know, uh, two well-known assassinations um, in, the, in the early part of the century, one by, of a politician and one of a filmmaker. Um, and you know, there's, there's, there's been uh, a great to-do over Geert Wilders, another party leader, uh, who's now going to have to be guarded for life. But he does get the protection as long as he's in Parliament. Baudet doesn't even get that. And we're just about to come to general elections again. So not looking good. Uh, what else has Rutter been up to on his way out? Well, as far away as uh, the Chinese press, the South China Morning Post, it's been noted that he, he's, he's doing the Dutch thing of, of, of dropping a heavy hint that, that goes clang, clang on the floor. I would be very interested in being Secretary General of NATO, he says. Uh, but the bit that interests the South China Morning Post uh, is that he said, well, uh, we try to make all our defence ministers and Secretary Generals women these days in, in Northern and Western Europe. That's how we show how progressive we are. Uh, but there you go. Uh, but he's, he's putting it out. And Eva Flardinger Brook, well known to some viewers uh, because of her British appearances on GB News, comes out with this, which I have to say, um, the sentiment behind it is broadly shared in the Netherlands, not just by the narrow supporters of the Forum for Democracy or the particularly uh, severe opposition types. She says, Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte has announced he's available for the position of Secretary General at, nine, at NATO. Mind you, this man who ruined our country in less than a decade, he sold our country out to the globalist agenda flooded it with migrants, ruined our economy, and is the man behind the destruction of our farmers. And I would interpose, this is Alex speaking now, that uh, the 2014 referendum on the EU association agreement between Ukraine and the EU, which was forced by Dutch law, uh, requires that as well. Let's go back and read the rest. Um, she sa He goes on to say, uh, now, let, now we know why he let the government fall some months ago, seemingly out of nowhere. And indeed, the government could have fallen uh, in the coalition between the parties on any number of points, but no, it had to be that one. It was all intentional, says Eva Fladingerbrook, so that Rutter could secure himself a new job with his globalist friends. Now we know he why he rushed the CETA treaty. We covered that at the time. Now we know why the Netherlands, under his rule, provided such an insane amount of financial support to Ukraine compared with other European countries. Now we know why he called the Ukraine-Russian war our war and why he gave himself he, he, billions of our tax money to Ukraine and NATO. He was literally buying himself a new job. And according to the South China Morning Post, he might not even get it because they want a female candidate. Okay, thank you, <laughs> thank you, Alex. I, I'm smiling. It's just so obvious this little circuit of uh, friends and people moved around from one job to the other. We'll do some more tracking of him, hopefully. Um, Debbie, I'm going to pass back to you just to finish off today's news for the subjects the MHRA. Yeah, thank you, Brian. So the MHRA, you know how much I really look forward to their board meetings, but sometimes they don't put their links to join as quickly as I'd like them to. So I just want to remind everybody that the next MHRA board meeting, in fact, the last one of 2023, 
will be on Tuesday the 21st of November. Now there hasn't been a link to register for it yet. So if anybody does want to join and just give the MHRA uh, an email and ask them to send you a joining link. But before that, it's Med Safety Week between the 6th and 11th of November. And this is where the MHRA are encouraging us all to talk about serious adverse events, to talk about yellow cards. And they make it really easy because if you just flip to the next slide, they'll tell you where you can download banners, what hashtags to use. So use hashtag MedSafetyWeek, hashtag MHRA yellow card. And I would suggest to all of our wonderful audience, we've all got a lot to say about yellow cards and patient set safety and adverse reactions. So now's your chance. Brilliant, Debbie. Thank you very much for that. Alex, thank you for your excellent contribution. Well, we've ended on the subject, the MHRA. So I have to say, get, get into the UK Columns shop and treat yourself to a June Rain t-shirt uh, because it makes a statement and it helps us. And that allows us to do more reporting on these terribly serious issues of pharmaceutical products, the lack of regulation and damage that's being do that, that is being done to uh, people not only in UK, but worldwide. We must leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, still got that stormy cloud in the backdrop here for UK, but that's life in November in uh, Plymouth. Uh, but that's today's news. Uh, we will be back for extra time in a few minutes. If you're a subscriber, join us then. Uh, otherwise, we'll see you on Friday. Bye-bye.